uh, we're starting a new series on the book of Philippians. I want to, I'm going to give you, here's, here's how it's going to go today. This is the old uh, rhetorical technique of tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, then tell them what you told them, okay? So here's how it's going to go today. We're going to, I'm going to give you a little intro, a little background on the book of Philippians, and then I'm going to, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to tell you a story that's going to kind of hopefully get your mind around what Paul is trying to say to the church in Philippi, but more than that, what he's trying to say to us. And then we'll, we'll read the scriptures, we'll comment on that, and we'll close things off. Just so you know, though, Philippians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 2, uh, we divide them. Paul did not. So at the end of chapter 2, or at the end of chapter 1, the beginning of chapter 2, you, you really can't separate them. We're going to do it. But we'll probably go back to the end of chapter one next week just to read it all in this context. So here's a little background on the book. Um, there's no question that Paul liked or loved the Philippian church most. He, he, they're his favorite. And it's hard, to, it's hard to think, you know, daddies don't, aren't supposed to love one kid more than another. Church planters aren't supposed to love one church more than another. But this, I think, we we're pretty 99% sure that this was Paul on his first missionary journey after he had been converted to Christianity and moved out into, into proclaiming the word of God around the known world. The first church he planted was in Philippi. And he just oozes gratitude and appreciation for them throughout this whole book. Now, in contrast to that, Paul's letter to the Galatian church, in Galatians, of all the books that Paul wrote, all the letters, the epistles, Paul thanked God for every church except the church in Galatia. He never once says, I thank my God every time I think of you, or I praise God every time I pray for you. No, never. Because he was so frustrated with them. And, what he was, and there's a reason to talk about Galatians and Philippians. Uh, we're going to contrast them here. Paul was so frustrated with the church in Galatia because several things had happened. They had taken root, taken hold of the gospel and they were faithful people. And then Jewish Christians came in and started making them feel guilty and telling them that in order to be saved, you need Jesus plus legalism, Jesus plus circumcision, Jesus plus obedience to the Jewish law. And Paul had some really harsh Words. In fact, the, the English translation settles them down so much that you hardly get the idea. But um, he wasn't nice. And the other thing they were doing is they were trying to, they were saying that I get to do whatever, because I'm saved, I can do whatever I want because God has to forgive me. And Paul's like, no, no. And that's when he says, you know, things like this, people who live this way, he has this list of the works of the flesh. People who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. I mean, he was harsh to the Galatian church. But what they were struggling with most is the Judaizers, the, the Jewish Christians who came in to try to convince the, the, the people who weren't Jewish but were Christians that they had to be Jewish in order to be Christian. Paul sees that as the biggest danger to the gospel. It's beginning to filter into the Philippian church. Not much, but he's gotten word. Now, Paul is in, the, in prison in Rome. It's either Rome or Ephesus where most theologians believe that he's in Rome and the church in Philippi heard that he was in prison and that he wasn't feeling well. And so they sent some people to him like we, we do sometimes. I know that uh, the Zweigheisens often go down to Africa just to minister to our missionaries down there. They go and visit and they care for them. The Philippian church sent some people to Paul just to love on him, to tell him that we're praying for you, to care for him, to tend to him. And he was very, very grateful for that. And so he sent them back, these people that came to visit, um, uh, 
Epaphrodites and, and, and uh, uh, Timothy, and he sent them back, and he sent them there with his authority. To, and he didn't just say thanks. He wanted to teach them some things, too. So the book of Philippians is Paul's encouragement to the church in Philippi. But I want you to just be aware of something. It's not just Paul's encouragement to the church in Philippi. It's God's encouragement to us. What they were dealing with is the beginning of persecution. What they, were begin, what they were dealing with is people from the outside, the Roman church and some of these Judaizers were coming in and they were starting to get, it started to get ugly where they lived. And Paul sees and hears that they're starting to turn not on their enemy, but on one another. He's starting to see that they, they're, they're starting to hurt one another instead of serving one another. So that's the background. I'm going to say a prayer, and then we're going to give you this. Siri just heard me say something that she thought. Uh, greetings, Trent. Okay, sorry. I just heard this voice up here that no one else heard, and I'm either losing it. <laughs> the Holy Spirit. Um, it's just Siri. So uh, let, me, let me offer a prayer. I'm going to tell you a story that I hope will frame this, and then we'll move forward. And I think you will walk out of here both convicted and encouraged. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for Paul's authorship. Thank you for his church planting, his multiplication movement. Thank you that you called him not only to the people that thought they knew you, but to the people who were sure they didn't. Lord, the words you have for us today, I want them to be your words, not mine. I don't want this to be my message for them, but your message for us. So if there's something I plan to say that you don't want said, I don't want to say it. Convict me of it later, but wipe it from my memory. But Lord, if there's something you want said that I haven't thought of, please make it burn within me so that I know to speak your word to your people today. And Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear so that we can see and hear what you want us to see and hear. And soften our hearts so that the word that goes out, the, the sword of the spirit, the word of God, as it pricks our hearts, it does the job you want it to do. Do not let it return to you void. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to go back to World War II. This is, a, this is kind of an account from a guy named Tim Hansel. I read this book, Holy Sweat, in 1987 is when it came out. Tim was a man very, very accustomed to or very familiar with pain. Um, he was a big outdoorsman, and he was hiking one day, uh, and I don't, I don't remember where it was. It was in, out, in, out west with the big, you know, the spires of rocks and those little rock bridges that come over, and he was walking across one. I believe it was snowy, um, and he was walking across one, and he, he thought he was on the rock, and he stepped onto a snow drift that wasn't the rock, and he fell 100-plus feet and fractured much of his body, and this whole book is about him dealing with chronic pain and someone encouraged him. He was asking someone, you know what, how do you stay so up? He says, you, you, you have to choose joy. And this book is his journey with choosing joy. I mean, there's a difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is dependent upon circumstances. You know, if, if when I was in high school, if I, if I got a, a, a B plus or better on a test that I forgot to study for, I was happy. But that was because something good happened to me. Joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit. It's part of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Joy is not dependent on circumstances. Joy is what we choose even when circumstances tell us that we shouldn't. Joy is a state of being more than it is dependent upon circumstances. So he, he talks about this. And one of the examples he gives of how to choose something that doesn't look like it makes sense is this, this man named Angus. 
Angus McGillivray, very, very Scottish. In fact, he was part of the Scottish army in World War II. They were called the Argyles. Um, but he, the, this, the account comes from the people that built the bridge over the River Kwai, uh, Kwai, however you say it. Uh, just a big, they were fighting the Japanese and a bunch of people had been captured and tortured. There were uh, Scottish, British, Irish, I know they're all kind of UK, uh, Australian and American soldiers that had been captured. And they were put in this internment camp or this, not an internment camp, this prisoner of war camp. And the weird thing about this is that that, 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 became, that became a dog-eat-dog world. And if you think about it, we, we read books, at least when I was growing up, we, we read a book called Lord of the Flies. If there's no authority nothing higher that you're accountable to. People tend to turn on each other and the worst of humanity comes out. The other place that you see that is when it's I survive depends on you not. If I'm going to thrive, I got to take what you have for myself. When it becomes survival of the fittest or dog eat dog, that's what happened. They had these, they weren't fed enough. They, they had fleas, they had lice, they had, there was dysentery, there was tuberculosis going around within the camp. So these allied soldiers turned on one another. In fact, it got so bad, they had this little pack that the Red Cross uh, provided for every soldier. And it had just basic, the absolute basics, like a little water or a canteen, that kind of thing. Um, But it got so bad that people would sleep on their packs and they would rest their heads on it because they didn't want it to get stolen. And other soldiers would literally come up and grab their hair, pull them up, take their pack, steal it, and make it their own. When bread or water would come, uh, they would, you know, when the rations came, when they would come in into the cell or into the dormitory area, they would, they would hand out a tray that had all the food on it. People were, they were grabbing it and they were fighting off other people. In fact, if you got a hold of one and you went off into the corner and you kind of hid yourself and you're going to kind of eat your bread, eat your food, one or two soldiers would often come up and beat it out of you. They would take your blankets, they would take your water. So people were dying because other people were trying to live. It was the worst of humanity and they were the people that we sent over there. And that began to change when the word of a guy, Angus, had died. Angus was, if you've ever seen, you know what caber tossing is in Scotland? Telephone poles, these guys grab them and they throw them, it's a sport. Throwing poles. I mean, this guy, I don't know if you've seen these guys, like the the strongest men in the world contest, these big, burly, just, that's what Angus looked like. So if anyone's going to survive this camp, it's Angus. But Angus was an Argyle. And Argyles, uh, they they trained with their, got to make sure I say this. I got to make sure I get it right because it's going to come out wrong. Yep, that's the word. They trained with their mucker. Mucker with an M. It was their partner. From boot camp on, you had one person that you trained with. You trained with others, but you had one person that you were responsible for. And we talked last week about, uh, last week about the Holy Spirit being our paraclete, that it's part of the armor that the Holy Spirit uh, encourages us, defends us, covers our six. That's what a mucker is. And the idea with these Argyle army, uh, army folks was that your job when you're fighting is to make sure your mucker comes out alive. No matter what else happens, you make sure your mucker comes out alive and your mucker's trying to make sure you come out alive. You're always looking out for the well-being of the other, your mucker, and your mucker is looking out for your well-being. That, and they took that buddy system very seriously. So when, when 
Angus's mucker was, was dying, he had, it, it might not have been tuberculosis, but it had those symptoms. He was laying out, he couldn't get up to get his own food. And what, what Angus would do is he would get his rations because no one messed with Angus. He'd get his rations and he'd bring it over and he'd give it to his mucker. And he'd go, oh, no, 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 you need to eat, you need to save your No, 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 look at me. I've come across some extra. And when someone took his blanket, the flea-ridden, lice-ridden blanket, Angus gave him his. And when he had his water rations, Angus gave him his. And little by little, as his mucker began to recuperate, Angus began to succumb to illness. In fact, the doctors, after he died, when people heard that he had died, they were surprised. The doctors decided that it was a combination of starvation and exhaustion that had killed him. But as Angus Mucker began to recover, Angus collapsed, slumped over, and died. The doctors discovered that he had died starvation complicated by exhaustion. He had been giving his own food and shelter. He had given everything he had, even his very life. The ramifications of, these acts, of his acts of love and unselfishness had a startling impact on the compound. And then the author here quotes, Greater love has no man than to lay down his life for his friend. As word circulated for the reasons of Angus's death, the feel in the camp began to change. Suddenly, men began to focus on their mates, their friends, and humanity of living beyond survival, of giving oneself away. They began to pool their talents. One man was a violin maker, another an orchestra leader, another a cabinet maker, another a professor. Soon the camp had an orchestra full of homemade instruments in a church called Without Walls that was so powerful and so compelling that even the Japanese guards attended these worship services. The men began a university, a hospital, and a library system right within that prisoner of war camp. The place was transformed, and all but smothered, the most smothered of love was revised, revived. All because one man named Angus gave all that he had for his friend. For many of those men, this turnaround in the camp actually meant their survival. What happens is what happened is an awesome illustration of the potential that can be unleashed when one person actually gives everything away. Paul is telling Philippi, and God is telling us, I want you to be Angus. When you face opposition, when there's no hope, there is one way that wins. It might cost you, but there is one way that wins. Paul says this, and I want you to see this at the end. He's just oozing with thanksgiving and gratitude. And by the way, I know you're hot, but I have lights pouring down on me, and I wear a, kind of a light blue shirt. If it starts to get dark right in here, I'm sorry. <laughs> I sweat on a reasonably cool day, and it is Georgia right now. Here's this oozing in thanksgiving. I thank my God. Now listen, I'm going to emphasize. I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of the partnership, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Why? When he's oozing with, I always pray for all of you every time, da 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 da, da with joy. Why does he then move into, I'm confident that God, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion because he knows what they're facing and he knows that they're starting to, instead of turning the other cheek or instead of turning and facing the enemy, they decided to turn on one another. This happens in our culture all the time. Think about it. 
It happens in politics all the time. One person has a news conference or one person is quoted or one person leaves their mic off when they walk away and they say something. And even all the people that, that, that held them up and said, you are, you're amazing, you're awesome. One thing gets said wrong that gives the other side fodder to jump on and to, to, to be in the news with for the next three and a half weeks. Rallies and protests and all this other kind of thing. These people who used to lift this person up as a hero will turn on that person and blame them for the heat they're taking. They'll blame them and they'll sacrifice them to save their own skin. This was happening in the church and still does today. Someone does something right or with the Romans, you, you know, someone decided to, to not protest but to love someone who, who, who they were mistreating and to step in and to try to rescue them and the Romans would turn on them. And they wouldn't just turn on the person who did what was right, who tried to rescue someone who was being harmed. They turned on all the church. And so the people in the church are like, why did you do that? Just keep, just keep your head down, back off, let's put up a shelter around us and how dare you bring all this trouble onto us by doing something right? That's what's happening. So they became like the prisoner of war camp and not like Angus. There's an old illustration. I have no idea if it's true. If you're uh, an equestrian, if you breed horses and other uh, equine type animals, you will know better. But the story goes like this. That the difference between horses and mules is this. That when mules have an like a, they're out in the field and a pack of coyotes or a wolf or something like that, a predator comes toward them, they will kind of gather around in a circle and they will face their enemy. And that, that seems to make sense. But horses would face with the same kind of thing. They will, put, they, will, they will face one another. That doesn't seem to make much sense that you put your heads together and, and you, you expose yourself. But here's what happens. They know that there's a threat. And so the mules... Well, the, the horses, when they see a threat, they put their heads together and they kick outwards. Mules face outwards and kick each other. Which do you think Jesus wants from us? When we're opposed by the culture, when certain things are coming our way and people don't like us very much anymore, some of it's on them, some of it's on us. But when you look around, do you think that God wants us to gather our heads together and push back the enemy? Or do you think God wants to face the enemy and kick one another? Paul is saying, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And then he goes on for more encouragement and he says, he says, whatever happens... Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or I only hear about you in my absence, I know that, you will, that I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending in one, as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved in that by God. We'll talk about that in just a second. For it, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. No matter what happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or not, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. 
one spirit, contending as one man, standing firm. Last week when we talked about the armor of God, the breastplate, the belt, the shield, the helmet, the sandals, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. That's our offensive weapon. No matter what happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. When we face opposition, our offense is mercy and grace and peace and joy and kindness and humility. It's not anger or boasting or being offended. Think about the people that you respect. I was at a funeral yesterday for a man named Jack DeWitt. You might know him, you might not. But he's a man who, when they got word that he had cancer, yeah, they prayed for healing. But they lived as if to die was to gain. They lived that where he might go is far better than here. They continued to give glory to God. They continued to minister in his name. They continued to ensure that their children and their grandchildren know that their love for Jesus has not changed. Think about the people that you've seen in your life that you have respect for their faith. They're almost always not the people that everything worked out for, but the people that when you saw them get knocked down, when you saw them get their knees taken out, when you saw them get a terrible diagnosis, you saw them choose joy. You saw them continue to serve others, not just to be served. We find out in the next chapter that, that it says your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God, something to be held on to, but took on the nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Paul is telling the church in Philippi that if you're going to contend as one man, that one man should be Jesus. That no matter what happens, we're to conduct ourselves in the way that gives glory to God. And do you think glory to God gets glory when someone says something to us that's offensive and we lash out? Or do you think when one man slaps another man upside the head and this man that took the slap is a Christian, do you think that God is glorified more when he says, you know what, take another shot? When evil comes my way and I respond not evil with evil, but evil with kindness. When the political rhetoric blames Christians for everything, we think we're being persecuted, but no, folks, we're being mildly inconvenienced. Maybe we're being stoned to death with marshmallows. But I've never received 39 lashes with a cat of nine tails for preaching the gospel. I've never been put in jail because I'm carrying around a Bible. Yes, things have changed. Yes, it looks more and more ugly. Yes, we're more and more divided. But the hope for our country, the hope for our world is not in politics, it's not in policy, it's in Christ. God is not done with Community Reformed Church. We're 51 years old, he's just getting started. He's gonna start birthing churches and they're gonna birth churches. We complain that churches don't believe the same way they used to, so instead of complaining and trying to get them to change, we're just gonna start new ones. But when we have an opportunity to show someone who Jesus is, it's in our suffering. It's in our pain. I'm not saying that people can't come to Christ through joy. I'm not saying that. 
But folks, when you're hurting, when you're opposed, when something awful happens, how you choose to respond, whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And I think that when he says here that, that if, you, if you do that, then it'll be a sign that they're condemned and that you're saved and that by God. I don't think, and I've done a lot of work on this passage, I don't think that Paul is saying, well, when they're mean to you, that sends them to hell. I think what he's saying is, folks, if you watch Christians, you look at the worst of humanity uh, and you see Christians or brave people who decide not to lash out but to take shots. I think it's the, the Boston Massacre. It might be the, the uh, St. Valentine's Massacre. Some person after the last service you know, thought that I had it wrong, and I might, I might have, but look it up. One of those two, there's a group of British soldiers trying to put down the, up, the uprising of, of the colonists, right? And they're on the street, and these colonists are coming forward. They're not armed, and the Brits tell them, you know, disperse or, or we shoot. We're not leaving. So they shot them. First row falls down. Next row moves forward. They shot them. They fall. Next row moves up. Finally, the Brits said, in their humanity, I'm not going to shoot men who won't defend themselves. And it changed the mood of the colonists. Just like Angus' selfless act changed the mood and the spirit of the camp. Folks, Paul says here, for it is granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. I don't think that God gives us suffering. And I don't want to minimize or trivialize your pain. If you have a child or a grandchild, if you have someone that you love dearly that doesn't know the Lord, I'm not going to minimize or trivialize your callous knees from, from kneeling down and seeking God and saying, please reveal yourself to this person. They mean so much to me, and I know they mean so much to you. Lord, call them to yourself. I'm not going to trivialize that in any way. And if you've been diagnosed with something, or if you live with constant pain, or if you've, you've suffered divorce or abuse, I'm not going to trivialize your pain. But I want you to know this. God will not waste it. Romans 8.28 tells us, in all things, God works together for the good, for those who trust in Christ Jesus and are called according to his purpose. It doesn't say all things happen for God, from God. It says that even in that, God will not waste it. He will put it to use. He will, he will bring a testimony. He will somehow, some way, in some form, someone else will see how good God is by how you persevere in your pain. It is so sad in our culture. Not, it, it, it's sad if we tell people that God made you suffer. That's wrong. But it's equally as wrong that when someone's suffering to say, well, you must have done something. You must have done something. God, God's just punishing you. No. No. The suffering that I've had in my life, I wish it didn't happen, but I wouldn't give it back. Because God didn't waste it. See, he's not done. He's not done with you personally. He's not done with your family He's not done with this church. He's not done with the Reformed Church in America. He's not done with our country, and he's not done with this world because every knee has not yet bowed or bent. Every, every tongue has not yet confessed. Paul is telling the church in Galatia that when it, or in Philippi, when it's ugly, folks, behave the way Jesus behaved toward you. While you were still sinners, he loved you. 
While you were lost, he sought you out. When you were hurting, he comforted you. When you were thirsty, he gave you water, living water, so you would never truly thirst again. God's not done. And he calls on his people to simply do this. Be like Angus. Willing to consider the needs of the other over your own. To not return evil with evil, but evil with kindness. To pray for those who want harm to come to you. And to forgive those who actually do you harm. Forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. And to turn toward one another and kick at our enemy. And folks, the other party is not the enemy. Other people are not the enemy. The enemy, the enemy is the enemy of God who wants to harden one man's heart against God and one man's heart against the other, who wants to have one man harm another, who wants to have one woman betray another, who wants to have one child turn away from mom and dad and turn away from the faith of the family. That's the enemy that the sword of the spirit is meant to put down. Every time the word of God goes out, one of those minions of the devil gets pushed back a little bit, gets weakened a little more. Pastor Doug said a couple of weeks ago, there's two dogs. Which one's going to win? The one you feed. What happens to the one that you're not feeding? It starves. That's internal and it's external. The best of humanity is to stand together as Christ. And when evil comes, to return it with kindness. To not be offended by every little thing. Because when people see how you respond when there's opposition to you, shows them the God that you worship. And personally, I don't want my God to be seen as a wuss. If I am someone who loves the Lord with all my heart, strength, soul, and mind, then I should be someone that when pain comes, I trust him not to waste it, and I endure choosing joy. I hope to God that you'll do similarly, not without fault, but whatever comes, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you're not done. Thank you that there's more. Thank you that you articulate the love that you have for us in the next chapter of Philippians. And there's nothing we can argue with in it. I pray, Lord, that you give us the courage to turn the other cheek, to forgive those who wrong us, to return evil, not with evil, but with kindness, and to pray for those who harm us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, through the power of your spirit, for the glory of God our Father. Amen.